Chits are gonna have their way tonight. The Porter Rickens grumble, fair fight, but when they start a rumble, we'll rumble them right. We're gonna hand them a surprise tonight. We're gonna cut them down to size tonight. We said, okay, no rumpus, no drinks, but just in case they jump us, we're ready to mix tonight. Hello and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. Here to join me for this one, uh, musical correspondent John Police. John, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. And also joining, he just wants some beer, some weed and a trip to the zoo. It's Josh Brown. Josh, what's going on? Why you do me like that? teacher. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, it's it's all in good fun. You're here to talk about your boy Steve, so I think I, I think I think I think you're I think you're happy. Um, as I said, this is uh, Steven Spielberg's adaptation of West Side Story, which is most infamously a movie that came out 60 years ago that was adapted from the 1957 play with music from uh, Leonard Bernstein and Stephen Sondheim, and a uh, the movie the, the original movie though was directed by. By, uh, Jerome Robbins and Robert Wise. Here, though, uh, Spielberg has collaborated with a lot of his uh, usual cohorts, most notably uh, playwright and screenwriter Tony Kushner, to bring the movie to uh, 2021, which you know largely tracks with the original story in that you have a couple of gangs, the the uh, the Sharks who are of Puerto Rican descent and the Jets who are uh, mostly white. They are you know at odds in the San Juan Hill neighborhood of the Upper West Side of Manhattan at a point in time in which, you know, it's going through a lot of change and a lot of destruction. So it can be built back up and uh, into like a much more, uh, you know, modern, slicker looking place. Uh, you know, the original movie notably, um, you know, begins after its a little opening overture with a, uh, you know, a helicopter shot of a lot of New York. But here we kind of have a different kind of drone shot that shows us a, a neighborhood that's just being torn down. So or a, a block that's being torn down so the Lincoln Center can be built back up on top of it. And the Jets and the Sharks are, you know, just uh, fighting to, for all of this territory. And the uh, Sharks are led by Bernardo, who's played by David Alvarez. The Jets are led by Riff, who's played by Mike Feist. And in their ongoing war, uh, Riff is trying to, you know, bring back his uh, friend Tony into the fold. Tony, played by Ansel Elgort here, uh, helped start the Jets with him. And uh, but in, in more notably, I would say in this version, uh, you know, recently got off of a one year prison stint and is having to keep his nose clean. But these two uh, warring gangs are about to, you know, have their, uh, they're on a bit of a collision course that's set to take place at a dance. And Riff is trying to get Tony to show up at this dance. He reluctantly eventually does. And there he uh, happens to meet Bernardo's sister, Maria, who is played by Rachel Zegler, and uh, who's a total newcomer to the screen. And uh, they uh, strike up a romance and that, uh, you know, sets the Jets and the Sharks even more at odds as they, you know, barrel towards a uh, towards a violent rumble. We'll, we'll get into a few more of the differences and but largely this tracks with the original story. And uh, Josh, I guess I want to start with you because 
I mean, you've been very, very excited for this movie for a long time. I've talked about a lot of musicals now with John at this point, but I don't think we've ever, the two of us have ever talked about a musical. I, I don't know your feelings about the original movie at all. I, 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 I just don't know exactly where you're coming at from this, but I know you were very excited. Was that, was, was your level of excitement, did that have anything to do with an affinity for the original West Side Story? Or was it more that you're just, Steven Spielberg is like your guy and you were just happy to see your guy tackle a musical regardless of what it was? What, why were you so excited? Excited about this movie and uh i mean you were like legitimately scared i think like legitimately nervous heading in about like have i hyped myself up too much and it, i think turns out the answer to that was no where did all this excitement come from and like what were the biggest ways in which like steve met your expectations so let me start by i'm a little bit insulted josh I'm okay a little bit insulted. okay because like number one as much as i'm a steven spielberg fan musicals are my favorite genre we so never talked I, about one yeah, I, I'm a little. Yeah, it's it, and this is our first Steve. All right, I've been on this podcast for. Many this is this years. is the this is the podcast for a Spielberg movie. I don't think he's had one come out since I started it because uh, wasn't Ready Player One like early 2018? Yeah, 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 exactly. So this is the first time I'm talking Steve, right? Yeah. But I like in general, I'm I'm a huge musical fan. In particular, I love the 50s MGM musicals, right? Uh, where they emphasize like the dancing, the choreography, and it's in bright Technicolor, right? That's my jam, right? Um, the original uh, 1961 West Side Story, I think, is a perfect masterpiece. You know, uh, putting aside brown face and whatnot, but um, uh, but as it's a big point, caveat. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. At least, it's, at least it's the brown guy that's saying that, not us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But as a musical, right? Those sequences in that film and the songs and stuff is perfect, right? You know, there's a reason why West Side Story is, you know probably one of the most iconic musicals to ever hit Broadway, right? That movie is great. And so actually going into this, so let me give you some context, all right? So huge fan of Steve, right? Big fan, number one fan, right? Um, that being said, the past decade for a Steven fan has been really rough, been <laughs> really rough, you know? Like, I think, I think, he entered the 21st century really strong. I think the 2000s is his most interesting and best decade, right? Um, that's a run of AI, Minority Report, Catch Me If You Can, Munich, um, top tier, top tier, all right? And then usually with directors in their late career, if you look back, there's always that one movie that probably tripped them up. And it's not to say that they didn't make a good movie afterwards, right? But it's the movie where it's like, oh, shit, they're still recovering from and they probably kind of lost their mojo a bit right and so i think if you look back i think kingdom of crystal skull onwards it's been a lot rougher right um there's been some movies that i do like like lincoln um like bridge of spies i'll say bridges oh god okay fine um, I'll, 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 go ahead it, but and, and, and tintin and, and ready player one right but not necessarily love any of them, which is weird because usually he drops the film, it would be in my top 10, right? But a lot of times I find myself apologizing, you know, where it's like, all right, like Bridge of Spies, I'm like, it, it, it's lower tier, but I can like find things I like about, it, right? What about, Link what about Lincoln? I think like Lincoln's like the best movie I never want to watch again. Yeah, well, yeah, Lincoln is the best of his 2010 stuff by yeah. far, right? And that's the thing. His best late career collaborator is Tony Kushner. All right. When it and so when I first when this was first announced that he was doing West Side Story, right? I was because there's some projects that he has picked, right? It, it, it's like, oh no. I, I was baffled when it was chosen. 
And then the end result, I was very disappointed, like the BFG, right? When I had heard that he wanted to do West Side Story, I think like everybody else, I was like, this is misguided. Like, why does it need to be remade? Why are you setting it yourself for failure? Also, are you the best person, Steve? No disrespect, uh, old Jewish man in his 70s to remake a movie about this Hispanic culture. All right. I, I didn't get it. I didn't get it. The only saving grace was I know he's always wanted to do a musical. I know he has the chops to do so. And also Tony Kushner was involved. And Tony Kushner has been sort of like the has produced the best late period Spielberg movies. So, so you said you didn't get it. So, what, 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 what changed between you not getting it and you like over the last like four weeks, like just losing your shit over this movie before it even well, before you even saw it? Well, a couple things, couple things, right? With every Stevens project, it's sort of like I'm like, why? Well, I, I, I'm like, this is misguided. This is bad. Then I then like in the months leading up to it. I talked myself into it and then <laughs> and then like there and then there's the end result and then I then I probably have to see it again to like really be like 100% sure of what my dots are like you know like the post I thought holy fuck he 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 shit the bed what the fuck is this did he did he lose it you know is there no coming back from that right and and then I have to like maybe talk myself back into it and be like you know, you know, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad, you know, but this one, I, I sort of when when it premiered, actually, the first trailer dropped, I, I saw like, oh, he was doing something interesting. I saw some shots. and I was like, oh, fuck, here he is. Right. But then when the premiere happened, when the early reviews went and now keep in mind, like a Spielberg movie is probably more often than not going to get a polite reception. Right. It was in, it was a level of enthusiasm that I had not seen from any of his late period work, right? And the fact that it was good, the fact that people were just saying it was good, but not only that, but like people were like, hey, is this better than the 61 version? Had it just been good, right? I would have been like, that's a remarkable feat, all right? That that That's almost impossible, right? But the fact that like people are like, hey, this might be on par, if not better than the original one, I was like, here we <laughs> fucking go. <laughs> Well, okay. also, if you notice the reception, it was also the people who were the most like, do we need this? I love musicals. Yeah. Are we sure? And then they like went to a screening and lost their minds. And you were like, oh, OK. Like it was it was almost hard to process how fast they turned. We're like, like, I think Ready Player One's a good example of what you're saying. We're like, people are like, OK, fine. Like, I think of that movie where anyone besides Spielberg, it would have gotten a lot worse reviews. People were a little <laughs> bit giving him like some buffer and it, there. And it got tough reviews it was like even like yeah. like even and keep in mind I, there's that's a movie where i apologize for right there's things that i like about it i think there's things that he brings to it that make it very interesting right but like it, it got some of his worst reviews ever and, and people were like why the fuck are you making this you know what i mean but yeah as you said like there there is a baseline of like polite reception but also like not that much enthusiasm for his latter period work I was gonna say with this movie, it's also one of those things where like, because we've been waiting for this for so long, it's almost like you, we knew they thought they had a box office hit and that's why they were trying, they didn't put it out like on something during the pandemic. Cause this was supposed to come out like Christmas 2020, correct? Or around yeah. there? Yeah. And also to be fair, even if they didn't think that 
it's it's a Steven Spielberg joint, and also motherfucker hates Netflix, so like <laughs> they're never yeah. gonna like drop this on Disney Plus. No, absolutely. But I think with movies like that, when you're here, like this happened to I think Wes Anderson with French Dispatch too, where like you've been waiting for it for so long that almost like even if it were a good movie, you've been like there's been such a long period of anticipation they're kind of like just release it already. Like I'm tired, and so the fact that even with that, with how long people have been waiting for it, that the reception was so universally effusive, that was like a real wake up call there where I was like, oh, this is like, this is something that I wasn't expecting. Josh, there's a lot of ways to start this out. I want to ask you, what's the biggest thing that Steve got right? Well, here's the thing. Let's talk about the biggest thing he'd got wrong, right? Because I think we're probably all in agreement of the one thing that probably like holds this movie back. Starts with Ansel Elgort, right? And now here's the thing, right? I'm not as down on his performance as everybody else. Like, he is the weakest link. Don't get me wrong, right? Um, However, I think he's just serviceable because, like, everything else is, like, working 100%. Where you have the other cast members, like Mike Fuss or Ariana DeBose or Rita Marino or Rachel Zegler doing phenomenal work, right? And then also on a craft level, the thing, biggest thing that he brings of it is his technical skill, like just what he is doing with the camera, but also, um, you know, I think what Kushner is doing where, again, they were entering dicey territory as two non-Hispanic men making this movie about Hispanic culture, where there was a lot of landmines they could have like uh, hit. And they actually did a very respectful job and deepening the themes of the original movies about gentrification, class, race, and that sort of thing. So, but yeah, like, I think there's just one thing, minor thing that was done wrong or whatever. Um, And I understand that, like, you know, the movie at the end of the day is a love story. And if you can't buy one of the leads, I understand that. But I think Ansel's serviceable and it's like like negligible to the end result which i think is fucking phenomenal i okay, disagree uh, i disagree oh. pretty strongly actually okay um, how? because i think the thing about romeo and juliet and west Side story as it adapts that is that tony and maria are almost like plastic bags moving in the wind they are mm-hmm. so subject to the forces around them they are so pulled by those things that even despite their best efforts to get out of this or escape this or have some agency they're unable to do it and i think if you have someone playing to the Tony is too strong or too independent of a character. I actually think the character is not written to actually have a lot of depth or a lot of agency. They added some of the backstory about, Oh, I went to prison. Oh, I'm like trying to like renew from this. And Ansel Elgort's face, the entire movie is basically like stressed, confused is like the, the best way I can describe it. He's like, like a little bit torn, a little bit confused, a little bit like a little bit dumb. And you're just kind of like, Oh, you just like don't know how to deal with all of this. And like, I think it works because I think at the end of the day, I think your investment in the story falls a lot more on Riff and Bernardo in the first half and then in Anita as you finish it up. And I think that Tony and Maria are the central characters in terms of screen time, but I don't think they are the ones driving the story. Here's the thing, here's the thing. I half agree where I'm like, yeah, like for me, that's sort of like why it doesn't really bother me. But I understand if someone's like, hey, I need to buy this romantic chemistry and I don't, like, if I have to buy that 
this girl is going to fall for this guy, even though he fucking killed her brother. Like, you know, I understand if like, if you have issues with the lead, the romantic lead in this movie, and if it doesn't work for you. Now, that's to me, it, it, it doesn't really matter. Like, it, like, to me, he's in service of this grander machine that is working at full speed around him. So but yeah, like I I, cool. I, I get you. I kind of like it, it doesn't bother me. That oh. that's where I stand on it. I, I think I don't think he's like the worst thing ever. I think he's just clearly the weakest link. Yeah, uh, and I, th- I, well, I think both I think both of you guys have made it clear, like in spite of your different your slightly different takes on that, you both really like the movie. I really like the movie too. And I, normally I'm in the target. I'm in that demographic of audience that would like that would be a huge problem for. It's just like, you know, thin characterizations of romance. Like, it's just a thing that it's like a hang up for me when like any any time a movie like this expects you to believe two people are in love and reduces it to like, you know, a five minute montage. Whereas at least in the, at least then there's like an implied passage of time. You know, West Side Story is a huge ask that like, you know, you're expecting. And I guess, again, that's a Romeo and Juliet thing, too, kind of. But like, regardless, they're asking you to, you know, buy that these people are in love and that, you know, even despite the fact that one of them kills another sibling. Uh, and it's so a what? lot. Josh, on yeah. that note, though, I want to say this to Josh, and I'll so I'll throw it in here. I think the biggest issue of what you're bringing up is actually a staging issue, not an acting issue, because I think that by moving the Tony and Maria moment where they meet and fall in love from being like this magical type of thing in the middle of the gym with the lights and kind of like almost superhuman the way it is the original movie to having it behind the gym and kind of this like quiet little moment, I don't think it, I like part of musicals is that when you have dancing, you have singing, it's supposed to be like almost kind of an out-of-body experience. It's something that's happening outside of normal humanity. And it's supposed to to show something in a way that just pure acting can't. And I think that scene almost brought it too much down to earth in a way that the one thing I struggled with is like, later when you have Maria singing to Anita about like, I love him. I know he killed my brother. And I was just like, I don't buy this. And so I actually think that was the one thing where like, Romeo and Juliet obviously is a love story. You kind of have to buy into that. But that was the one thing that actually kind of bothered me is I felt like that moment was kind of weak. Well, my point was <laughs> I still I still liked everything else. Uh, I, but I actually I actually liked the the, the meet cute and me too. Me more, too. more than more than the original. And that like the original, like again, I, I just watched the original for the first time in a few years the other day. And it was just like I, I something just strikes me very oddly about that moment where they just meet in that in that loud gym and they're like, I, I don't even think the sound mixing is particularly great in the original where they're talking to each other. And I actually the one time I, I liked Elgort the best in that scene behind the bleachers, I kind of bought that he would be charmed by her. I like how she was a little more aggressive than him. And and I don't know, I, I just kind of like I, I actually dug that moment more. I, I, I don't like the end of it. Like we're, we're, it's just a, it's just a story fall. It's a hang up. And I just thought everything else in this movie was so well done that that hang up at the end that you have to buy that they're still going to be in love with each other. That doesn't that just I, I, I'm kind of like Josh. And it's like I, 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 I normally that would really bother me a lot. And I still don't love it, but I love everything else about it. What were you going to say, Josh? Oh, yeah. I fucking love the meet cute sequence because like <laughs> the original one. Right. So like how it's conveyed is like everything sort of stops time. Right. Um, and um, and in this version is a lot simpler. He's using like just a bunch of lens flares behind the bleachers. Right. But it creates this magical feeling. And then also, you know, like Spielberg, that is like one of his like stylistic things that he has popularized. Right. And nowadays it's kind of used like the lens flares use sort of, you know, as a stylistic touch without any meaning, right? But in this sequence, he's actually adding like subtext 
to his like style, right? Like where it is creating this like magical moment uh, between these two people. And, and it's sort of, I can't even describe it. Like the feeling that it's causing is sort of inex inexplicable, but yeah, like I, I, I actually love that uh, moment when they meet. And again, I don't really care too, too much about the actual romance that's happening. I'm, I'm sort of just invested in sort of the splendor of everything else. And with, by the way, like that dance sequence sort of um, reminds me of like what I, my biggest takeaway with that uh, sequence and sort of what Spring, Spielberg brings to it, which is a, like the sequence is sort of like an extension of like this musical sequence that he does in 1941, um, this USS Dance Hall sequence, which is sort of like a precursor to it. But B, the character Chino in that, because in this movie, he's a lot more fleshed out, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the character Chino sort of represents Spielberg as like a humanist, right? Where like, you know, ostensibly on paper, given where this movie ends up in, Chino should technically sort of be like the villain essentially right and in he's in the movie like we relate to that character there's so much empathy given to this character the in sort of spielberg's world there's no real bad guys right there's just you know people who are their failure to communicate with each other leads them to make the bad decisions that they make you know what i mean and so like i think like like the character of chino um, sort of represents what Kushner and Spielberg do really well with this, which is sort of fully flesh out all the ideas of the original and give it a greater oomph to it. Chino is played by Josh Andres Rivera. Should I should mention that? Uh, no, I, that was one thing I had written down too. Is it's, it's cool how they like made him a uh, made, just made him a real character. Uh, John, I want to ask you. Like, I mean, you mentioned how like you 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 like how Tony and Maria actually kind of fit in here storytelling wise, but I want to ask you overall for you. What was the number one way in which this movie justified its existence? Because, I mean, one thing we didn't we, we didn't really touch on yet was that like how a lot of people were probably or Josh kind of did. But like a lot of people were cynically like, do we really need this? And I'm wondering, like, what was the biggest reason for you that this one, like, you know, stands on its own? So there's a couple of things to that. And I guess the place the thing I want to talk about for a second, if I may, is yeah. the place like where West Side Story fits in, like the history of Broadway, because as a show, I think it's easy to be like, oh, 1957, it's an old show. But the thing about West Side Story is it's it's one of these like brilliant things where it was the first work, like Leonard Bernstein was in his career, but it's the first thing Sondheim did. It's the first thing Arthur Lorenz did. It, and like the other thing about Sondheim is Sondheim usually writes his own lyrics and music. He's kind of one of those guys who puts them together and Bernstein's a composer. And so if I remember correctly, the way this worked was like Sondheim was just out of Harvard at like 22 and Bernstein was like, I have this show. Can you write some lyrics for me? And like, yeah. I think it's the only show he just wrote the lyrics for. I think every yeah. show he's composed in lyrics. Um, yeah. And he resented that too. Like... Yeah, he was mad about it. <laughs> um, wait, wait, wait. wait, wait. Wait, wait, wait. Who, who, who was mad? Sorry, who was mad? Uh, Sondheim. I think Sondheim he, he, was, he was mad that someone had already wrote the music before he had a chance to I, do it himself. I think the yeah, way he... because like because like when when he starts like uh, making his other musicals, like he he does the music and lyrics for them. And the thing that like I was watching the HBO documentary on him, and it basically his thing was like you know, since he, you know, like once he makes a transition to doing music or whatever, people write him off as only a lyricist, right? Um, and he didn't like the lack of control that he, uh, like, again, this was sort of like an apprenticeship for him. So he was glad to take it, but he didn't like the fact that like he was beholden to another, to another person's uh, music and that it might've pigeonholed him later in his career in terms of being taken seriously as a music composer. Got it. Got it. John, continue. 
And well, the other thing uh, going on with what Josh was saying is the fact that a lot of people who do both, my understanding of their process from having known a few is that most people write the lyrics and then will compose the music for it because you, like, the way you have to write the music has to fit the way the words work. And so a lot of people to have to have the music and then fit words into that almost like it's kind of like, it's like kind limiting, of shoehorning yeah. a certain way. It's like, yeah. really difficult. And so, but like it, the other thing about West Side Story I think is worth noticing, noting is that it came out in 57 the sound of music, like the later Rodgers and Hammerstein is 1959. And so when you think about stylistically what this did, if we think about like, and this is a, I actually think uh, Rent's a better example here than Hamilton. But if you think about musicals that like kind of ushered in a sea sea change in terms of the way shows were done in terms of what a Broadway musical could be, West Side Story absolutely is that. And so in a lot of ways, yes, it is very old, but it was very before its time. And so the thing about it's an adaptation to a movie and I think this is one of the things, going back to your question, that I think Spielberg does incredibly well here, is it is an incredibly kinetic movie. Um, one of the things I noticed from the original 61 is a lot of it singing to the camera, several of the songs. Like, there are several things he restages. There are several things he does in motion, whether it's something's coming and singing that to Valentina. There are a lot of things where songs can be to the audience when they're on stage, and that can be the human connection. But in a movie, you can't just be singing to camera for four minutes. You have to have... The, the motion, the uh, like the the dialogue, whatever it's doing. And I think the thing that a lot of musicals get knocked for is that a lot of times the songs are static. They don't move the plot along. And in this musical, I think one of the, the way this was staged, I think there are a lot of songs that can be static and they are staged and shot in a way that moves the story forward. The fact that something's coming is not him talking to himself. It's him talking to Valentina. And it's like, it's like a crescendo of here's where I'm going. Here's what I'm explaining. There are a lot of those pieces where I think the thing that, and I think obviously this, we have to talk about the production design and the, and the like the apocalyptic landscape this is set on, which was mind blowing. I still, I'm getting chills right now. It was incredible. Yeah. But, and one thing I noticed when I went back and watched the original was that it does feel fairly soundstagey. It does, but also I think- In a good way though, in my opinion, like it, it, it supports the artifice of it. It is what it is, but I think it is very much, if you, if like Josh, when we talked about Tick, Tick, Boom and the fact that it doesn't have a lot of just like, I'm singing to the camera and like a lot of just like, I'm shooting a, a stage musical on a soundstage. Right. I think the 61 does that in a lot of ways. And I think that's not terrible because you also have to imagine like what movies have become and the way they've kind of changed in a lot of ways. But I think the thing that works here is just that like, it's a two and a half hour movie and it never drags. I saw this on like two and a half hours sleep yesterday, like after being up for 15 hours and like, it was just like on the edge of my seat, let's go. Like, <laughs> it's It's just so kinetic. And so I think, I think the best thing that justifies its existence is the fact that it just, despite being set in the same time, it feels so fresh in that there are storytelling ways, there are dialogue changes, there are setting things. But I still think the main thing about it is the way it moves, the way it's staged. I don't think there was a single number that I would have been like, oh, this is just like singing the camera. Like everything is to someone else, to the world, to each other. Like I feel pretty being taken from her just being in her room to like with the other people who are working with her at that night. Like he clearly had been thinking about doing this for a long time. He clearly had an idea of how this works as a movie. And I feel like this works as a movie in a way that I didn't know was possible. Yeah, I'd agree. Josh just about jumped out of his seat three times and gave about four thumbs up while you were talking. So Josh, what, 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 it it seems like you were, you, you really were with what John was saying there. What, What was there anything you were especially wanted to shout out there with respect to how your boy Steve was moving the camera? 
So again, like um, John, like he echoed my sentiments like pretty well, right? And I think the way you should think about this movie is um, in terms of like it's justifying its existence and being it set in the same time period. Because at first, even like I scoffed that like, wait, you're remaking West Side Story and you're still going to have it take place in the 1950s. And as John was saying, the reason why the original one takes place in the 1950s is because it is reflective of its time. It's an immediate reaction to what is happening um, with race relations in New York in the 1950s, right? Um, so it didn't kind of make any sense that you would keep it in the same era except to sort of justify keeping the songs the same, um, which is, I think, the main motivator why Steven Spielberg wanted to do this. However, putting that aside, you should think of this movie as sort of like the best revival of like a Broadway musical like that you've ever seen, where it just takes the original one, right? And just refines it and it improves it and perfects it to the best of its abilities. And part of that is through Spielberg's direction because he is the most kinetic filmmaker alive when it comes to moving the camera, right? There's a Spielberg wonder and how seamlessly how he does that. Um, and I think... The one thing that I would say about like sort of the later period Spielberg work in the two 2010s is I feel like he was sort of building himself up to this moment when he's doing movies like Tintin, BFG, and uh, Ready Player One, where he's in that motion capture realm where he can do whatever the fuck he wants with the camera and it's boundless, right? And so I think he's bringing that energy of having the camera be almost like, you know, not bound to gravity to this project. And... Can I go off your revival really... point? You mentioned calling it a revival, and I think that's a really important thing to note because the thing with West Side Story as opposed to a lot of other shows, and I think the best other one to mention here is the Mikado, the Gilbert and Sullivan, that's also like very racist, is that there are shows that have a lot of history, and so the revivals on Broadway have actually been changing the show a lot over time. Like, we'd obviously had the more recent revival that changed a lot of the songs into Spanish and that kind of thing, but this is a show that, while it is very revered, has not been revered at the level of, like, we can't change a word in the text. There already has been a lot of experimentation with like, how do we restage things? How do we change things? How do we update it to be like more reflective of like the values that we hold? And so I think that's one thing that Spielberg has is that all the things that have you on Broadway actually kind of create this kind of playground where you can pick and choose the most interesting things that he wanted to do as opposed to only having like the original version from 65 years ago. And then also the book, like the foundation is strong, right? The book for West Side, this is one of the things that like when I was trying to talk myself into it a little bit and where I was like, okay, okay, no matter what, like I knew that this was probably going to be in my head. I knew that this was going to be a formal exercise for a, uh, first and foremost, he wanted to do a musical. I kind of underestimated how much like he was passionate about West Side Story. But that being said, like I, I knew going in, it was going to be a formal exercise. So me as someone, as Josh knows, like I've signed myself up on this podcast to like, you know, talk about like the old man autorist films like especially the misguided blockbusters i just like when directors are sort of up their own ass when it comes to the craft right? the uninitiated the welcome to marwins of the world or the yeah. uh gemini mans of the world one of those like misguided but hey as a technical exercise is very interesting right um but the moment where i knew like holy shit we are hit like like okay this is it this is it baby is that opening tracking shot right of the apocalyptic rubble right he's doing the spielberg rubble right and it culminates it culminates in this boulder shaped 
wrecking ball, all right? He, like, you know, last time there's a bolder fucking opening sequence with him is Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? <laughs> and so I was like, oh, shit, he's energized right now, right? And so and in many ways, like, when I was watching this movie, it does feel like a weird culmination of everything he's kind of been building up to throughout his career, where it's taking, like, all of his previous themes about you know lost innocence authority uh changing state of america um and putting and masculinity like all spielberg films at the end of the day are deconstructions of masculinity so it kind of makes sense that you know he's made his gangster movie is about you know you know basically toxic masculinity these two rival gangs that are fighting in this movie they actually do um that's the thing i like about the opening sequence a lot is that all right, they're really delving into like the racial relations here, right? There is actually a, a motivating factor, not just that these uh, group uh, guys like hate each other. Like the desecration of the Puerto Rican uh, flag mural is what sets up the events of the film. You know what I mean? Well, just the first sequence, like, I mean, I like that you stopped on that first sequence. I mean, I just feel like I went from what I remember from it's like it's like it's all a blur, even though I rewatched 61 one, you know, 10 days ago or whatever. Like that, that opening fight sequence in that one is almost played for laughs. And mm -hmm. I mean, again, not that it's bad or anything. And I, and I, one, one thing I should have started out by saying was like, you know, you guys were talking about the early word being, you know, some people saying, oh, this might be better than the original. I'm almost hesitant to say that myself because like, I've never seen the original in a theater. I think I missed the chance to at some point in the last few years and I'm kind of mad. And I don't know how much of it is tainted by the fact that this is the one I've seen in theaters. But the one thing that like, I do think like worked off the bat for me uh, and who knows, it might've been enhanced by that theater experience was that like, I mean, not just that that fight wasn't played for last, which I'm not saying is necessarily a bad thing in the original, but that like, like you said, whether it be the desecrating the mural, but also just like that, that fight has a darker tone and like, it, it actually feels intense. And then we jump to the, the speech that Corey Stoll gives where he like, is just like railing against the white guys and saying how you're the last that can't make it Caucasians and all that. And it made it feel timely in a way that I think John was also getting at earlier. And that like, I, I don't think that I never felt like I was getting beat over the head with any like modern day parallels, even though like, you know, you can definitely see some kind of modern day parallels about like these white guys that are kind of getting left behind, uh, getting mad about these uh, foreigners encroaching on their turf. And I thought like, I mean, I guess the stealth MVP for me is, is Kushner, um, where he like found a way to like do this somewhat deftly and mm -hmm. like actually make it feel fairly resonant in that regard with like how these race relations were building there in a way that like only really had to slightly alter different parts of the 1957 one or well yeah i guess it was 1957 when it was written to like actually make it feel like very timely for now and that's like one of the ways and there's a lot of different examples in the way that's done throughout this movie but like that was the biggest thing for me is like oh they actually made this feel like uh somewhat like relevant for our times too even if like it's so technically well done it would have like maybe stood on its own anyway i was like oh wow their storytelling is actually like really impressive here in a way that like i think just like warrants its own separate discussion about how this like is actually a good movie for 2021 actually you brought up something kind of like interesting there which is sort of like you know, a common thing with like a Spielberg film, especially latter day Spielberg, uh, where he's mostly working historical period. Right. Um, you know, like they say that like, as directors get like older, like if you look at him and his, you know, closest contemporary Martin Scorsese, they mostly stick to historical period pieces. Right. Um, and I think Scorsese once said the like, reason why, like when they were asking, could you make Mean Streets today was because, hey, we're still out of touch with the culture that like 
I don't think we could actually authenticate, you know, modern times, right? If we tried, right? Was sort of Scorsese's argument. And I remember like one like critique of Bridge of Spies where like that movie is like commenting on like the war on terror, get Guantanamo and stuff like that um, was, you know, they felt like, uh, and it's the same thing with the post where it's just like, you know, you're using like a past event um, uh, to sort of like comment on the present and they sort of were critiquing that like that's sort of kind of easy or whatever whereas like the more challenging thing would be like presenting like a hypothetical or whatever um instead of like you know a past event that's like parallel to actually like sort of challenge us or whatever but that being said in the case of west side story because i you know when or when this thing was starting to develop and like spielberg was slowly giving his reasons as to why he was making it um it was clear it was you know tackling immigration right and this was like it started being developed during the early trump years and i think in the weird way by keeping it set inside the time period it sort of you know makes an argument for Spielberg's sort of classicism like at the end of the day Spielberg is like an old-time Hollywood director like he is the you know a master of like the craft like from the golden period of Hollywood right and he's sort of the last practitioners of that right um and that in this way it's sort of it kind of is working towards his favor where he's sort of using the time period, um, you know, to comment on the present time or whatever, but really sort of, you know, kind of refine and perfect like what the original was sort of going for at the same time. Going off of that, I think the other thing this movie does really well is justifying why it had to happen at this moment. The fact that you like, the, the biggest thing that I think this movie adds that the 61 doesn't have, and I think is so critical is the fact that they are all based like, rats in a barrel that's getting slowly like smaller and smaller and like they have to eat each other because the world that exists around them is being destroyed at like every moment and so it's not just that like racial conflicts have always existed immigration has always existed like we can go through all that but the fact that this story and the way it happens is so dependent on this time and these pressures and the fact that like the West side of West side story doesn't exist anymore. It does not exist today because it was demolished to make way for Lincoln center. And so there are a lot of these things that aren't in the original one. That's so interesting because I think with a lot of these stories, it's a kind of question of why this is it said at this moment, why does it have to be, or why, why could, why could it be moved somewhere else? And I think the way this is set up actually like really justifies the fact that it should be kept in that time as opposed to moving to somewhere else or some other moment. And then the other thing, too, is like in that exchange between the police officers and um, both the Jets and the Sharks, you get the impression that like, hey, while this is a class construct, right, the police look down upon the Jets, right? Um, At the end of the day, they're also protecting like white supremacy. It's like they're going to like, you know, you know, uh, safeguard the Jets when it comes to this street turf war between them and the Sharks. You're, you're kind of right. I mean, I, I, I do think it like it made it clear that like, yeah, even as I had mentioned before, how I, I liked how Corey Stoll was like, uh, you know, setting the scene there. And I, and I, and I just think that that opening sequence, it, it, it's so efficient, too, in like uh, in, in making clear like what the stakes are, but also just, you know, what the power structure is there. And it's like, yeah, he, he's kind of talking buddy buddy in the, with the Jets in a way, even while like, you know, still making it clear why they're such a such a pain in his ass, but I, I, I just thought that whole entire like opening sequence is so just so efficiently, like really 
got it like okay here here here's just like how intense things have been in a way that like i i don't know i i i felt like i was better set up for the final act a little bit than than i than i personally expected to be because they just they they went for it to like i don't know such a such a great extent right there oh by the way i'm like can yeah. we talk about like because like you know i think one thing that well, might have given some people skepticism and especially when you're thinking of the opening sequence too mm-hmm. is sort of the gritty like color aesthetic that john janusz kaminski is bringing to it and also the as john was saying like the apocalyptic like uh set decoration by adam stockhausen who also does a lot of the wes anderson movies um and i one thing that i really like though is like in the beginning of the movie you mostly like unlike the original one where it's pretty bright and colorful and they make clear who the jets versus the sharks and who they are based off their outfits here it's muddied up in the beginning of the film right and then when you get to a sequence like america the movie slowly emerges out of its sort of gritty gray aesthetic to this bright vibrant uh aesthetic aesthetic where you're in you know indulging in this hispanic neighborhood and i just thought that was just an elegant touch and how they like were able to transition very seamlessly into sort of uh, these two different worlds of this, you know, same um, part of New York. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. The one other thing I want to back up and mention, though, on the uh, just on everything we were talking about before about how they set, they, they just kind of like you know set up all the all the conflict with respect to the race relationship relation stuff. Cause I feel like I, I, we've done a little bit of a disservice to some of the uh, performers here by like, we've, yeah. made it th- we've made it this long without talking, especially without talking about um, some of the female performers. And, you know, uh, the, 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 I guess the one, the one actress I didn't shout out yet was Ariana DeBose who plays Anita. And, you know, I think I, I, I one, one of the things I kind of, and maybe John could tell me a little more, like, I mean, while it's clear in the, I think while it's clear in the original, she like, obviously like has a little bit more of an affinity for America than Bernardo, the, the the whole nagging of people to speak English, that was something new for this movie. Right. Yes. And I thought that that like was like a, uh, another uh, pretty little good trick. They kind of threw in there in, in the script and in such a way that like, I don't know, it just, it just, I think everything that that character has to go through by the end where she's become so disenchanted with the country. I just think like, it's a, it's, it's such a nice, uh, um, such a smart little thing. It just kind of peppers in throughout the movie to like, really just like, kind of like tell the story of that community, like through her and just like such a, such a smart way. And that helps you kind of buy the transformation that she goes on. And it's just like another way where, you know, I feel like Kushner was acutely aware of like, the, the story he was trying to tell and um, trying to do it in different ways. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, again, I want to give the performers their own credit for that too, beyond just like the script itself. So, I mean, if you guys want to jump in and say anything really about any of these people, like feel free to do so. But I'm wondering, uh, John, what, what, what your thoughts were on that too. And how, yeah, like we have the jets and the sharks here and just like uh, you know, how they're, how their conflict is representative of a lot of things, but also like, you know, I think the movie uh, did right by its two female characters or the, it's two primary female characters. Oh, there are so many places to go from there. Um, yeah. On the speak English thing, I want to mention briefly, one of the things the movie does so well in the script is you have the dichotomy. Like there are a lot of things in this movie that kind of are double-edged, like double-edged swords where like they're used one way and one another. And the speak English is really interesting because you have the cops constantly telling them to speak English and it's like an adversarial thing. But there's also a scene where Bernardo and Anita are together and Anita's telling him, like, you need to express yourself in English. Like, you have to be able to do this because on one hand, there's like the world, tell, like the cops being like, do it, like the racist part. But there's also the, the flip side of that coin, which is Anita being like, 
no, this is what you need to be able to do to survive in this world. And you've got to do it. Like this, it's really interesting. Like those come up little by little. I thought that was so interesting. And I think more broadly with Anita, and we talked about this a little bit with Tick, Tick, Boom, but the casting of this movie is incredible. And I think one of the things in this movie that's so fascinating is that everyone kind of looks normal. It's like actually a very well, like it's not movie stars. Everyone kind of looks scruffy. Like people look real in a lot of ways. And then you have Ariana DeBose, who is just, lights the world on fire it's just steals her, every scene like lights the entire thing on, like just burn it all down it was incredible and she's and such her a movie star. expressions throughout like are just in, in, impeccable like she has this charisma and and also i think to john's point about like the deft touch with the racial stuff i, I feel like going in this wasn't the intention but i think it's made a little bit more resonant especially anita's arc going from this assimilationist to someone who is disenchanted with America by the end of the movie, which makes that American number even more, you know, resonant is the fact that they did cast an Afro-Latina, you know, um, weird that the Spielberg Kushner movie is like avoided the colorism landmine that in the height <laughs> enter, like uh, I, who would have thought, who would have predicted, <laughs> but also, um, you know, this movie, you know, one thing that has been notable too is like Spielberg's lack of subtitles when you're in um, the shark community. And, you know, he's talked about how like he didn't want the English to overpower it and like, you know, give more favor to the Jets in a sense. And I think that's sort of, you know, it's actually something he's been doing for a while. He likes to make the audience feel like the characters, but uh, where like in Bridge of Spies, like, you know, it's not subtitled. So you feel the confusion of a Tom Hanks character in this other place. And he's done it in several other movies like Amistad, but um, which also gets to like a key Spielbergian theme, which is communication. You know, it, you know, going back to like E.T. phone home or close encounters communicating with aliens through music, uh, which kind of indicates like, yeah, he thought like when, you know, we made contact with extraterrestrial beings, it would be with music. So he that he should have been making a musical. But I digress. I think it sort of speaks to like Spielberg's innate hu humanism, his innate empathy, where he's like, nah. Like, you can understand what these characters are feeling through the emotions that my cast is bringing out. And I think that is just a subtle touch that, you know, and I think that I don't think like Spielberg gets enough credit for as a director is that he's an actor's director at the end of the day. I think for the most part, if you point to like any type of performer, I think I think like their performance in a Spielberg movie would rank in their top five performances ever, even Ansel. Even Ansel, this is probably his second best performance behind Baby Driver. And so I think, you know, just him discovering Rachel Zegler and Ariana DeBose and Mike Fass, um, which, by the way, is, is he, he, he reminds me of John Mulaney. So I'm like, oh, wow, it's the Sharks versus the Sackbug Lunch Gang. Um, <laughs> but he's very good at his riff. Like, I, I hope he wins Best Supporting Actor. I leaned over to my friend I was seeing this movie with and I was like, he has such big dick energy. <laughs> like he just takes, steals the screen. Like the biggest, I will say though, of the three, main, I think the three leads of the movie, which are not Tony Maria, but Anita, Bernardo and um, uh, Riff. I think Bernardo is the weakest, but I also think that just speaks to how good Mike Weiss and Ariana DeBose are because the thing with Riff especially is that like you had to have to be like, his death is like really the inciting incident of the movie, like which is obviously like two thirds way through, but like that's the that's the peak like emotional thing, and so you have to 
not only went over the audience, but went over the audience in such a way that when that happens, you fully feel it. And I think there's something so fascinating because as we were talking about earlier, I think one of the things this movie does really well and the reason they didn't do the Jerome Robbins choreography in a lot of places is they're not dancing to fighting, they are fighting. And like in that initial scene where he gets nailed in the ear in this movie, he just gets a scratch. Like he barely has a little scratch with blood on his cheek. Like they put a fucking nail through his ear in this. And so there's just a lot of like things early that with Riff, especially the way Mike Feist does it, that it's a lot darker. And it's like, it's very like, it's edgy comic, but it is, there's some, darkness there and so it honestly makes sense the pinnacle it gets to and the way the performance goes where you're like oh there's like i don't know if it's a death wish i don't know what it is but it's very very bleak the entire way through and i think that's why it works so well yeah i mean like feist mike feist is just like i don't know he's he's so he's he's so effectively prickly and it's like you feel like that guy could like go off the handle at any point and you've already seen him go through like i I was i was already i made that point earlier i think about just how how i i just felt like the beginning of the 61 one was you know, played for laughs, whereas like John just like made that point. Like the a guy gets a nail in his like ear, like you can't really laugh that off. And so you've already seen these guys go through like one legitimate fight. You've seen him like planning this other fight, though. I mean, some of the most incredible acting that Mike Vice does is like when he when the first time he picks up that knife and he's like actually like a little taken aback, like of the moment right then and there. Uh, so but like the fact is though, you've seen him talk such a tough game throughout. And I mean, I don't know if you've won, he's won us over in so much as like that we like riff, but like we were just like, holy shit, this guy's giving an incredible performance. And riff has been like, again, so prickly. So putting on such a, you know, such, such a hard demeanor that like that moment when he actually does like get stabbed is like, uh, I mean, the acting is, uh, great. And so we're, we're just like, Oh, wow. This is something we're seeing here. And I was, I was really taken aback in that moment in a way. I don't necessarily think I was in the 61 one. And I hate to keep doing comparisons there, but like, I, I, it, it, I, I really, it felt like the movie stopped for a second when that happened literally. And I was just like, I was just really blown away. And, uh, and it's, it's very well set up by everything they put you through before that. And also, like, to John's point about, like, the grittiness of it, I'm also thinking about, like, the sequence where they're um, uh, fetching the gun, right? And how, like, it's magnificently choreographed. Like, um, I think a lot of it is done in a single take. That's the reason why I really wanted to see it again before I did this podcast, because, like, the first time, I'm just kind of taking it in. And the second time, you know, I'm now that I know what to expect, I wanted to look a little bit closer at it. But, um like you know that sequence is really well done where you feel the danger in this world but also you know we talked about how like the original one um like a lot of things are played a little bit more comedically i think we should not take away from the fact that there's a lot of wit to this film all right and especially in some of the sequences uh like officer krupke and like the thing with like steven spielberg is that you know he gets knocked for like doing like 1941 which is like cns's greatest failure and like oh, he can't do comedy. And the thing is, it's like with Spielberg, it's like all of Spielberg's comedy is visual. He's a great visually comedic filmmaker. Like he would have been a great silent film director. Um, and so like when you get to like the choreography, there is a lot of wit into some of the dance numbers, especially when you get to the Officer Krupke sequence towards the end of the movie. Josh, John, is, or, sorry, John, it sounded like you were going to say something when he first mentioned Officer Krupke. Oh, no, I, 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 Officer Krupke rules. And that's a great sequence that, again, is staged in a very kinetic, like, in the police station. But I, I actually think- with actually, how it's using the set. But I actually want to go the gun sequence for a second. Because yeah. not only the buying the gun sequence, which is not, like, there's a lot of, like, 
you get the sense the entire movie of like they're playing chicken. That's kind of why the dance works so much because you can't you can't ever take a step back because you have to be like right up against it. But when they're getting the gun, but the thing about the way the the gun like dance sequence between Tony and Riff like on that like I guess rotted pier is that it adds this level of agency to every character where if Tony really wanted to, he could have dropped the gun into the ocean, into the, the river. He could have done it. He didn't do it. And so there's a lot of these pieces where like all these things, everyone is making choices in how they're handling this. And I think the most interesting thing about that is when you have the final rumble and you have Tony's getting the shit beat out of him. And like, that's oh, scary. Uh, crazy but then like you also have not only the real danger but also that like that building thing where you get in that moment like i think in the original 61 one it's like tony's like i'm going for revenge and in this one it's a little more like it just kind of happens and i think there's a really interesting thing of the combination of the building danger but also like the chicken they're all playing where it just crescendos in a way that i think this movie does an incredible job of in a way that i think the struggle with having a lot of the fights and a lot of the things being dance choreographed is that that makes them by nature gentle. Like you just don't have the full like violence of it in a way that suddenly they're dead. And like before that, it's just them dancing. And the fact that they are like, again, prop choice, they show up with giant chains. Like this is in the movie. They're just like in the original 61 one, they're just like bringing wrapping to their knuckles. Like this is a pipe fight. And like, there's just a lot of those little things that like, not only the way it's shot, not only the way it's staged, not only the characters and the fact that like all the jets are like, not like they have a real cheerleader effect there where like none of them are actually hot, but like together you're like, maybe. And then you're like, no, but it's again, like they're all kind of like off, off brand. They all kind of like look really sad. Like there's just a lot of pieces where together it builds this world that everything's a little bit off and everything's a little bit worse than you think it is. And it just builds and builds and builds and slowly in a way that it makes sense the way it, it explodes. It doesn't feel like that scene is out of nowhere. It doesn't feel like that's not where you are getting Frankly, I had forgotten. I couldn't remember. I thought the gun was, I, my memory was that the gun was part of the original fight. And I'd forgotten that it actually isn't. It's not until the end. But there's just a lot of pieces there where I think the way that scene is done and I think the way that everything comes together is just in, just brilliant storytelling to make sure that your audience, your audience is on pins and needles because even if they know this story, even if they know where it's going, all like you have that impending sense of doom the entire way and all the things build to that. Yeah, like the, the choreography of the gun sequence is impressive, but as we're saying, like it conveys that sense of danger. And also I think like that sequence, the sequence of the gun sequence and also leading up to, you know, the climactic uh, scene where Riff and Bernardo die. Um, I think it really does play into the Spielbergian deconstruction of masculinity. And like with all Spielberg films, like usually at some point, masculinity is sort of deconstructed in some way. Like you can think to like Jaws where like the three uh, men on the boat are, you know, different versions of like masculine, right? Mm -hmm. And usually in a Spielberg film, like think about like how Indiana Jones fits with like 80s action heroes, right? He's actually a professor. He's more relying on his intellect than like being this man of muscle, right? Usually the more sensitive thinking uh, man sort of wins out uh, against like the more bravado, more macho stuff, right? He's not interested or he he usually pokes fun or uh, looks down upon that, right? And so in this movie, you know, 
Um, you do have like uh, Riff and Bernardo, the two macho men, like sort of meet their fates like very early on and are sort of victims of their machismo. But also, you know, you have like Tony, who's the more sensitive, more vulnerable guy, who's the lead protagonist, who uh, has the greater sense than the rest of the Jets. But also, funnily enough, the person who ends out like living, outliving them out of all of them is Chino. <laughs> like the more, you know, uh, sensitive dude. Um, um, uh, um, but your machismo point's totally fair because the way that you both have Tony and Chino, who are the two that can are trying to get out of this and are the two that are like, I, I think of this and this is the space nerd in me as like, they're like, they're like uh, asteroids. They're like, try to get out and the gravity's just pulling them back in. Like, yeah, this is like, it's a black hole. They can't escape masculinity. it. Yeah. And both of them could have not ended up where they were if they didn't have that ultimately masculine urge to like, I have to do something about it. Like Chino didn't have to pick up the gun. Tony didn't have to show up at the rumble. Like there are things they could have done. There are choices they made to end up at this point that were fundamentally due to their own ego and their own, as as you put it, like masculine identity that forces them to to make these decisions that are ultimately self-destructive i I just want to point out the chino thing again and that like i'm glad you guys circled back to him because i think we talked a little bit earlier about how like it just this one just like pays a little more attention to him and you know like it's the the original one was like a very long movie that like you know a lot hinges on that character ultimately but it doesn't really pay much mind to him for like basically any of the runtime i don't think you know they have the scene here with him in the boxing gym uh, which I mean, you know, it's really it's, well staged, by the way, with like the sure. shapes and stuff. Yeah. So there's that. And I, I just remember thinking in the original, like they keep saying Chino's got a gun. Chino's got a gun. And I was like, but I don't think they actually show him until like the end. You just kept hearing people say Chino's got a gun. So it's like here, not only have we had a couple other scenes with him earlier in the movie that like really, really color that character. But then like you have the one with him, like at the at the gym and it's like oh wow like we're, we've actually gotten to see his transformation i think that just like having that having him just like out there people talking about him while he's off screen just like those moments just like mean a lot more in the in the last act of this movie so i just i just i just wanted to like point that out again because yes. i mean I'm, we're going to circle back to the all the other actors probably before we finish this but i i i just thought that was something really cool that this movie found space for and his descent through the entire movie is really interesting because I think the fact that you just see him falling apart over the course of this, like he shows up like in his little coat and his tie and like with his glasses, and like very clean tie, and he just falls apart over. The- and like, obviously this entire musical is two days. And so, but you can just like, you see the collapse of this person who like, and like him kind of like emotionally falling apart as you kind of get to this conclusion. And there are some things where like, for instance, along with that, adding Chino more in, I think when you have Anita saying Chino shot Maria, on one hand, like I completely forgot that. And I like lost my shit when she said that. I was like, oh my God, what's happening? But also if you were the characters in that in that world and you've seen what, what's happened to Chino over the past day and you've seen all these things happening, that's not an unbelievable thing to have happened. And so I think in a lot of ways, the original makes him kind of just a... Uh, He's kind of a MacGuffin where he just kind of, not a MacGuffin, that's not the right term, but he, um, he's like a deuce ex machina. Yeah, kind of he's a part of us, yeah. Um, yeah, he just kind of comes in and it's just like, this is something I need to happen at the end. And I think here, I think they set him not as equal to Tony, but I think as two sides of the same coin. And so I think it makes, it works so much better from a storytelling perspective that that's how it ends. By the way, like, can we just admit something? Like, Maria, 
go with Chino over Tony. Like I'm just saying, like Tony's <laughs> kind of like a mediocre white guy. I'm sorry, like. Um, but, but will, um, they, will, they, will they try and dress uh, Chino down? And I think I think again he's clearly a better looking guy when he ruffles up his hair a little bit and takes off the glasses and all that. Uh, but like I, I mean, don't like I, the Chino. Chino's the one I'm like I, I've been there, Chino. I get it, you know. Yeah, uh, but the, <laughs> there, there there is something to that first scene though, where they're they're trying to like make him just like the, like the nerdy guy that Bernardo's bringing in. But like Bernardo genuinely seems to like think of him as like what they should aspire to be. Uh, yeah. and I, and, and I, and I bought that in Bernardo's performance right there that like, he, he really does like see something special there. He's genuine in the fact that he doesn't want him a part of the sharks. And it's like, Oh, here is like a, you know, we've already heard these, uh, heard references to all these white guys that have worked their way out of this neighborhood before. Here is like one example of like one guy that Bernardo sees is like, this could be our future. Hopefully I want this for my sister. So it's like all the more devastating, like that they, I, because they said that because they chose Tony. <laughs> well, yeah, because he chose Tony, but also just like uh, they, they, they put the time into just showing like the, to showing more about that character than they, than, than, than the previous iteration of this story had so much so that it's like, Oh, wow, here's what the Puerto Rican community should be like aspiring to. And then by the end, we have Anita, who is like the one that was like preaching for America above all else. Like, you know, she's like clearly done a uh, clearly been through the ringer and like is uh, just like, totally totally lost so it's like we see like uh, some something very aspirational before every the shit just hits the fan and i think that really works and also by the way into this like masculinity point because like you know right so the film currently right now is being banned in certain middle eastern middle, middle eastern uh countries because of really? anybody right yeah. um uh, the, trans stuff yeah yeah the trans character now I'm one, you know, I, I, I'm trying to handle this as delicately as possible. You know, I'm no expert on the community and stuff like that. I don't want to come across as like Dave Chappelle. Um, uh, but uh, like in this movie, like I think like that's an, another example. And then where like you could also feel the customer of this, um, who is someone who has a familiarity with that culture where they really do something a little bit more interesting than what like the fifties version can do with the character of anybody. And then when you get to like that scene where, you know, the character anybody wants to be a part of the jets um, and like, they don't take anybody seriously. And, and, but like the character of anybody gets one over, over these like dumb masculine jocks or whatever. in the officer Krupke sequence, you know? Um, and I think that's like sort of another example where they're playing a little bit, with this idea of masculinity. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, what did you think of the the choices they made particularly with that with that character John because I mean, I thought I thought I thought it was interesting in that like they I don't know. I, 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 the way Kushner handled it, it seemed like, oh, like they're they're doing it in about the like the most direct way they probably could for a movie set in that time, I guess. I thought it was lovely. Um as someone who is gay and deals with like deals with a lot of like genderqueer and like trans students and stuff like that I thought it was kind of lovely and I thought the loveliness of it was the fact that it was not anything big it was just using the the he pronouns that anybody really wanted calling him a boy that's all anybody wants and so I think the fact that he gets that at the end is really lovely and I think the idea of belonging acceptance that they all desire I think is really interesting because I think the way the anime character is used in the movie is also really interesting because I think one of the things that's hard to get about the Jets in general in the original movie is just how bad their lives are and the fact that like they don't have anyone. And so the fact that the only thing they have is each other and like this sense of belonging where like each group has their own struggles they're fighting with, they're dealing with against. Like obviously the the Jets don't have the same problems as the police, the Sharks do. And there are a lot of pieces there. But I think anybody was really nice 
example character of the fact that the white characters have this desperate need for family and belonging and the way that anybody's gender affects that and the fact that they, um, I guess he is able to be accepted in this way is kind of lovely. And it wasn't, I think it could have been over like heavy handed. I think it could have been too much. And I don't think it was, I didn't feel like it was one of those things. There's a movie, I'm forgetting. I don't remember. There's a movie I saw where it was like, they were talking about the characters were queer, but it was kind of like a background thing and came in. I'm forgetting what movie this was. What Jungle Cruise? Uh, no, God, no. We might've talked about that. I think you and I talked offline about that a little bit with Mitchell's versus the machines. That's it. Yes. The Mitchell's Abby versus the machines. Jacobson character in the movie. Yeah. The lead who's, who's a, like a queer in some form, probably a lesbian, but it, and it, like, it's an element, but it's just not significant. To the, it's not like always there in the plot. And I think the thing that's happened with queer characters in movies recently that I really appreciate is the fact that they are like the entire story doesn't have to be about that and it can be an element of it. And frankly, I think with anybody, I think it's not just about the gender identity, it's about like being accepted and the fact that they wouldn't accept him and the fact that they they do at the end, I think is really important. I mean, the fact that at the end of the movie, they're just like, you're all rapists. And I was just like, oh shit, this is where we're going. <laughs> well, I was gonna, I was gonna, I, well, it's funny. I was going to ask you next about Rita Moreno actually, because that's, I mean, that's, that's supposed to be, that's, that's like her big, well, I mean, she gets the song too, but like that's her other one really, really big moment in this movie, I would say. Josh, what did you make of them incorporating uh, Rita Moreno into this in a way that, like, honestly, you, like, I, I thought it was pretty impressive in that, like, I, I felt like there's obviously ways this could have felt, it could have felt shoehorned or a little too forced or or, 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 or stunty or whatever word you want to use for it. And I, I thought they, it, it, to be able to give her something more than a cameo, I think they did it in about the, the, the smartest way they could have. How did you feel it worked and uh, were you... Uh, did, and how do you think she did in a in, in in a different role but you know what without in a way that like was able to stand on its own despite the fact that like you know she's like most known for like giving such an iconic performance as anita see I, uh, and again like i thought she handled the small scenes that she's given with a lot of gravitas and i think the cushioner of it all um changing it to valentina you know the widow of doc and also towards the end of the movie where it's like oh She's now sort of seen as a traitor to the sharks, right? For having this interracial marriage. That is very like, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was interesting how they played with that. And it's just fucking wild. Rita Moreno over here, like one 90 Oscar, years old. 90 years old, won the Oscar for Anita in the first one, and now comes back and plays another role. And it's potentially possible for her to be nominated for an Oscar. <laughs> and, and and again, like I like, I don't know what the supporting actress field looks like right now, because I think it's her and DeBose that are trying to get into that field of five. Um, but And I don't know which one they would go with uh, between the two. But it is, she does make a lot of the small role that she is given in the film. Josh, you got to rank the non-generian performers this year. Clint or Rita, who gets the first spot? <laughs> Put me on the spot. Do we count the chicken from Cry Macho? Does he collect Social Security benefits? Um which, by the way, by the way, you got to be happy that it was Spielberg doing West Side Sorry and not like Clint Eastwood because it just would have been one take of oh, these. No. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> it wouldn't have mattered if they had gotten it right. You don't think Clint would have handled the uh, the anybody portion of this movie uh, with the carrot deserve, Josh? 
Uh, well, he had handle the race relations. Well, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I think we saw Clint try and we saw Clint already did the mule. I think we need him to stay away <laughs> for a little while. Hey, um, hey, we're not taking any mule slander on here. That's we're a, that's not, a, this is a pro mule podcast. You're the minority here. Like if you're going to two sequences, three sequences. Does, yeah. Doesn't he like call a bunch of lesbian characters? Um, like, oh, I don't God. know. I'm, I'm not comfortable saying it, but like an epithet. And doesn't he like. Ugh, Never, never mind. But let's um, leave, let's leave Clint alone. Um, yeah, but yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, how do you how do you feel about how do you feel about Rita Moreno, John? I think the nice thing about this, so I think the thing with cameos in this way is I think they're dangerous, especially when you have kind of that historical baggage, because I think there are a lot of movies like as we've seen with Lin Manuel Miranda, where it's like, "Hi, I'm in the background," and it's like, "Why? Why are you here?" And so I think on one hand you can do too small when you're just trying to throw someone in, but give them a, like a shot, and it's very out of place. And I think the other thing is I think you can try and add characters and make it too big. And I think the nice thing about the way they did the Valentina character is yes, there are elements of the way that Doc is in the in the original musical that they kind of poured it over. But there's also some interesting things where you like the something's coming like performance where it's to her instead of just like on the street was really interesting. I think there's a way of like if you imagine the pressures that are in Tony's life, I think the number one, if you had to list it, is disappointing Valentina. And so I think that's like the person he cares about most in the world. And so I think there's something really interesting about how understated her performance is. Like, frankly, I think she's getting buzzed mostly because I think people really love her and she's won an Oscar. I don't think if this were another actress, like we think about in the Heights, where like that buzz has already kind of gone away, but uh, I'm forgetting the name at this point, but elderly female character i was like we should give her an oscar nomination yeah the, but, gra- the, the grandma or the yeah. or not the grandma but the 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 matriarchal figure yes. for the community yeah yeah um but i think the thing about it that i like is the fact that they did understate it is the fact that it was they didn't feel the need like the thing about west side story is it's a three character show with tony and maria kind of being thrown around and so part of that that happens is the when you lose when bernardo and riff both die it leaves this huge vacuum in the show because that was the entire energy center of the show and so it's kind of just anita and valentina's a really interesting counterpoint that my memory and tell me if i'm wrong on this i don't think doc was nearly this active of a character i think doc was just kind of in the background in the original one like he was not nearly this involved he's, he's, he's around a little bit but yeah yeah in, i think he is sort of the moral conscience of that film if from my memory okay i it's same it, as valentina here okay i don't i, I don't think but he's I, quite i don't think he he's quite as like he doesn't get quite the spotlight that she does, but you know, he, he's there and he's present when, when, when the jets are around in, in the, in the shop and all that. Gotcha. Um, Cause the thing for me is I just feel like she kind of rises to the occasion a little bit there to be the other counterpoint. And obviously you have like the Valentina um, Anita scene where she says that Maria's dead, but you also have the, like the fact that basically after the rumble, I believe Anita or, Valentina's on screen the entire time because you go through Anita the entire police sequence going into that into a a, a boy like that then you go o- over to to Valentina's you go down to the basement you go there and then it's like it's one of the two of them is on screen basically the entire time and so it's a really interesting way of having not only two female characters but two kind of like at this point matriarchs doing that and I also think just like talking about masculinity and also like mother relationships I think it's really interesting to have just the difference in how having Tony's like parental figure being a Puerto Rican woman instead of a white man, I think is a really interesting change just in terms of if you imagine the ways that like Tony, like Tony and Maria are almost like rebelling against their world by going 
to each other. It's like a very teenage rebellion thing of like, you say I can't, I'm going to. And it's really interesting where like he, she does, he does have that example of like someone else who had a clearly important relationship to him that was uh, cross-racial. Yeah, I like I like I like their scenes. I mean, I again, I was fairly whatever on Ansel on the whole, but like it's hard not to be like charming when you're just like I guess sharing the screen with Rita Moreno and she's being charming. So I don't know if I want to give him too much credit for that, but I I, I did like their moments when she was trying to teach him the pickup lines in Spanish and, uh, and 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 I want to be clear. I don't think Ansel Elgort is good in this film, but I think he is what Tony needs to be, if that makes sense. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't think he's like blowing us off the screen. I don't think he's like, a, like do, I don't even think he's doing a great performance, but I think it's what the movie needs. If that makes yeah, sense. yeah. Like, I think it's just service. Like, yeah. I think it's one of those things like, you know, like on the rewatchable co- uh, podcast where they do like, uh, you know, the recasting couch or whatever. Yeah. Like, he would be the first one. You could probably think of like someone who could do it better. And it would bring the movie up a little bit, but I think he sort of is serviceable. Like it, it, it's just you know, um, yeah. yeah uh, but like I think we're doing Rachel Zegler dirty. We haven't really talked yeah. about her. Well, She's a new. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that's where I was going to go next because I like I wanted to say again like I I I like Dancil with Rita, but I think something I've heard a lot when I've been hearing people talk about just West Side Story, not just this movie, but like talking back to the rest, was how like basically and what we've already kind of said in that Tony and Maria are like the least interesting parts of the story to some extent. So I thought like again I I was pretty blah on him. I thought, but like I think one thing that elevated this movie for me with respect to the Tony and Maria of it all compared to the original was that like I mean. I don't necessarily know. I want to say I came away from the original being like, oh, the Natalie Wood performance is just like not good. But I've come to understand that that's what a lot of people think, at least compared to a lot of the other performers in that movie. And here, I I, I just don't think that like Rachel, Z- Z- I, I don't think one can say Rachel, Rachel Zegler is a weak link in that way. I think she is pretty great. And like I already mentioned a couple moments where I did say like Tony was fine. I liked him in the, their first meeting. He, I, I liked the shading he got a little bit more by like just, you know, saying he went to prison before. I, I just, I, when they're talking about it, when they go on the date to the cloisters, uh, like I, 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 I thought they were smart about how they slowed it down there more. And th- I like that scene better than the one at the, when he comes to the store in the 61 version. I just like, I, I just thought them on the subway and then them at the museum, like that just like, it gave me a little more to hold on to and trying to like buy them being in love at all. But I think, I, I, I think Rachel Ziegler like gets more credit for that than anyone, because like, I mean, it's pretty amazingly big shoes. She stepped into um, out of nowhere. And I, I, it seems like you were pretty impressed too, Josh. Yeah. And then like, also one sequence that I thought was really well done. And I'm not sure it's 100% Al Gore here and more it's like Spielberg is the Maria sequence. And like, and this is a case for like why, like what the screen Spielberg brings to it versus like the original movie where, you know, like the dancing is very dynamic, but the camera movements are not as much, but even so, like, I want to give the original credit. It is a dynamic movie, right? Um, all things uh, said, but like, there's stuff in that Maria sequence where, like, uh, A, there's a clever touch, right? Um, where, you know, he's singing Maria and, like, you see the different girls that could... There's so many Marias in this neighborhood and it's sort of kind of making fun of, like, this idea of their, like, romance in the first place. But also, like, the things that he's doing where it becomes very theatrical, very artifice, where, like, uh, like a light just comes out of nowhere, a uh, street light, like, brights at the right moment for, like, emphasis and stuff like that. I think th- that moment's very good and Zegler's very good in it. And she kills, like, her... 
I feel pretty number. And it's almost so heartbreaking where they place I feel pretty and where they do because it's after uh, Tony has killed her brother and she's just feel of joy and optimism and stuff. And it's this bright, colorful number. And it's and actually, I didn't really think too much of it until like now, but like its placement in the movie after that uh, uh, yeah. sequence makes it a little bit more heartbreaking, even though it's this bright, colorful uh, musical sequence. So that's one of the things that Sondheim does a lot in his musicals. This, the one that comes to mind that I love is Merrily, Merrily We Roll Along, where what he does there is he tells the story back in time. So you start at the end and go backward. And so you have interesting things where like, there's a song they sing when the two characters get married and then when they get divorced and the divorce song happens first. And so you have the sad version of not a day goes by without seeing you and like, and then it comes back and then you're at the wedding and it's happy and you have that kind of shading of knowing where it's going and what's happened. And I think the I Feel Pretty is an incredible example of that where you like by, I think the original movie makes a big mistake moving that earlier because it completely changes what that song means. It completely changes the tension of it. Like all the songs in this movie, frankly, I think are battles. And I think that's really interesting where the way they make the dynamic and make them two characters trying to show like either having a point or having something to do. But I think I feel pretty, especially of just like, it's almost a battle with her and everyone around her. Who's kind of like, Oh, you idiot kid. And she's like, no, I feel pretty. And the world they don't understand is that Bernardo's dead and that world's gone and you don't understand that. And so it's so like the inherent tension of it's just so brilliant. And I think the thing with Rachel Zegler's performance overall is I actually wasn't a big fan of it until the last like 10 minutes. I was a little bit down on it. And I think the reason for that is, if uh josh we talked about dear evan hansen there's a scene where he's singing to the parents of the kid who's been pretending pretending and just like sitting there singing and i'm like honey your brother died 20 minutes ago and you're sitting here singing to anita but i love him and she just has this like doe-eyed thing going on i was like come on like it didn't feel real i don't know if there's a way to make that feel real (laughs) no totally but but the place that i bought it the reason i bought it at the end of the day was the turn that happens with tony dies and the most important thing about tony being like the not the most important thing but the important thing that i've seen is the way what that does to maria sells the entire thing the turn she does there i genuinely was wondering because i knew she doesn't I, i knew one of them didn't die in the musical and i was like are they gonna kill her here like oh my god is this gonna happen and i was on pins and needles and so i think again, the entire arc of the transformation works really well. And I think, frankly, obviously she's a brilliant singer. Like the, the singing was incredible. And like the way she's she does- like it. a YouTube star. Like she was known for like doing like covers and like, again, like she was also a New York City theater kid as well. Yeah. So she, she was incredible. And I think it's a really interesting thing where I thought the other thing, and I don't remember this because obviously Romeo and Juliet, Juliet's 14. And has Maria always been 18? I always thought she was like 16 or 17. Um, I didn't think she was quite this old because I thought that was an interesting thing that I hadn't remembered was the fact that she's like, I am 18. I pay rent. Like I have agency. And that added a lot to like what she was. And it's not creepy if I have sex, even if the guy uh, killed my brother. I'm in the age. What a weird. Um, But even just the, the fact of the, the juxtaposition of her to Anita and the fact that they live together, they're not that far apart in age, but just the way they're treated, the way they handle things, and the, the agency they're given in the world, I thought was really interesting. And I thought it explains a lot of the way Maria's handling things, because a lot of her, she wants her own, for lack of a better word, agency in her world, and she doesn't have that. And so it's, I think, a really interesting character. I think, ultimately, I still think she is, like, secondary in terms of, like, plot mechanics. Like, she is not driving the plot. Like, she falls in love and then the world goes to shit and other people make decisions. But I still think that, again, what you were saying, Josh, we're like, 
as much as you can make those things make sense, I think she does a remarkable job. With yeah, it. and like I mean, if she, if if and it's just also important, I think that she's just I don't know, she's just better at emoting than Anto Elgort. That it might have been unwatchable if she was like giving a performance that was more on his level. It was just more, it was just more fun to watch her go for it and do the do the New York City uh, theater kid thing, as as Josh put it. You you um you you we've we've already been going for an hour and twenty minutes, so I I, I need to just jump back and say uh. I want to, I want to, I guess I'll ask you first, John. I mean, were there any other musical numbers in this thing that like you really wanted to like shout out as like, oh, wow, I really like how they conceived of this, given what I was kind of whatever preconceived notions I might have had about that number going in based on what I had seen from the original. I mean, I think they, they, because they reimagined a lot of these and we haven't, we haven't really talked that much in depth about them yet. I will say my personal like favorite, just based on what I expected going in, was um, G Officer Krupke because, you know, in the was it G or is it Dear Officer Krupke? I, I, think it's G, I think it's G Officer Krupke. Okay, so I, I did have it right. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was that it was that, in that like I, I just didn't get that one in the original. It, it just feels like it's just like all takes. It's very it's it's, it's more static. It's like just all t- kind of taking place in one in like one like spot out on the street. That's not all that not one of the better uh, sets in the movie. And I just feel like here it's more dynamic. And it was the first thing that came to mind earlier. Sure. And oh, it also when and when John made the point earlier about how like a lot of these songs in a way feel like they advanced the plot a little bit better than you would you would have expected. I just thought the way that they adapted it here was just like for what was this kind of like a, a mad moment for me when I was watching the 61 one. I was like, oh, wow, this really actually feels like it. Uh, it, it stands right there with some of the better um, with some of the better numbers in the 2021 film. Uh, John, were there any other uh, were, were there any other musical numbers where you're like, oh wow, like this pops in a way that I wasn't even really ready for? So there is one I'm going to say. I just will say broadly, I did not feel, and I know the show very well. I, I was like an undergrad theater kid. I almost did this show at one point. Like I know it well, and I did not feel like the only one that I disliked was I just like swapping out tonight for somewhere at the end, because in the original show, when Tony dies, she sings somewhere to him, not tonight. And mm. I thought that was a bad choice. I think that somewhere like the tones, those are completely different. And I think it was, I think that was changing things for the sake of changing things in terms of staging and like all those things. I think the most important one that changed, and I think the most important to say that to me is the jet song is the fact that in the original musical, in the 61 one, that's kind of a stationary thing in like a, like a basketball court. And the fact that not only do you have the song, like the thing about the dancing in this movie and the thing about dancing and singing is that like, we've talked about this before with musicals is the fact that in a musical dancing and singing, a lot of times are met, are almost like, this is actually being talked and completely gone. And in this one, every single number was happening in the world. And maybe there wasn't being singing, but like Maria was him shouting to the, the things like that. And so not only do you have the jet song going on the street and the way that other people react to them and everything's moving, but especially the fact of like how it moves through what we talked about with this like production design of like this like demolished thing where this song about them owning the neighborhood ends on a pile of rubble in the <laughs> middle of the world around them that's being destroyed. And I thought it was not only is the, the Mike Feist performance incredible but i thought that it sold not only their dynamic but the way they fit into this world and riff is this like compelling like would follow him off a cliff kind of leader all together and i thought that was like the most important thing to set the entire show going forward is you have to understand all those dynamics at once and so i thought it was just incredibly well yeah and and i guess visually the whole rubble thing kind of underscores how uh futile all of these characters efforts ultimately kind of are and foreshadows that in yeah, and you would way. think yeah. it would be too much the amount of like half demolished buildings they did it in, but somehow it just was like, 
I just thought it was striking visually and like really, in, I thought it was really interesting. I actually didn't think it was overdone. And I think you could imagine it being overdone, but I thought it was great. It kind of reminds me of that like famous like scene from like War of the Worlds where like Tom Cruise is coming out of like this basement and you like uh, camera zooms out and it's like this destroyed neighborhood with like an airplane uh, a jet with it. But yeah, no, like I, I agree. And like, yeah, like the, I, I think like if like one were to rewatch it, I think a lot of the plays irony uh, with the aesthetic of the film are going to be like hammered in more. And I like, again, like I really, really I, see here's in coming out of the movie. It's kind of frustrating that this movie bombed because I saw this movie in IMAX and it's a movie so meant for the theatrical uh, experience. It is such a cinematic high um, given how like dynamic the filmmaking of this movie is like, and I remember there's this quote from like Gene Kelly about how to direct a musical. And essentially the key is like the camera should be like a dancer as well. And like the Spielberg camera is that throughout the entire movie. And it is such a great film to watch on the big screen um, for how, you know, like, again, like, even like the fight choreography in this movie is better choreographed than like most action films that came out this year, you know? And so it's a damn shame that this movie is bombing when it's meant to be seen in a theater and when like it's going to be replaced in IMAX theater, uh, uh, IMAX screens with Spider-Man, which is not going to be nearly as well made as this one. And so I'm just want people to like see it like as many, I'm going to scope see it as many times as I can before it's, no longer playing in IMAX to get that rush again. Yeah, I want to see it on a better screen because the screen I saw it on, I was like, is this a little blurry or is this like a filter? And I was like a little bit unsure of how good the print that I was seeing it on was. Yeah, my, my, and then my... the other thing too, how are you guys going to disrespect Sondheim, man? He just fucking died and you're not going to see like his like most famous creation on the big screen told in the best way possible. Like, come on, put some respect, man. Like if, if anyone's made the return, if, if, if anyone, if, if for anyone that's made to return to theaters that cares about musicals, like, I don't know how you don't go see this, you know, and I, also I get, the I theaters get it are COVID. empty. There's no one else there. You can go see it by yourself at 10 a.m. Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> like that, like as much as I was sad, like my movie theater, you know, it didn't have that many people. It was like a Thursday night um, and the IMAX screen. But I was also uh, happy because like when the credits came on and the credits were well done, I could go, whoo, whoo, fucking did it. Like it felt <laughs> like my favorite team finally made it to the Super Bowl again and we fucking won, baby. Like I was hyped. I, I was like, I wanted to like applaud after every single number. I was just, I, I was in a state of elation uh, watching this movie. Yeah, the only John thing I'll say about the about the box office real quick is I'm very curious to see if this has the chance to gain with Christmas because the thing about this Christmas slate is like like I think of like I this I try to remember if this is correct but like I think of like Lady Bird and like movies like that that are like kind of like obviously like Oscar players but like dramas and like kind of family movies that you could see at Christmas and I'm not sure what that movie is besides a Marvel movie so I do feel like if you have older relatives or like people who would want to go see something this does feel like one of those movies that like the same way that happens at Thanksgiving that like what does everyone want to go see? And you could go see West Side Story. That does seem like something that could happen. And it's such a great crowd pleaser. You know, like the thing is, is like with Spielberg is like, he is like the guy who pioneered these blockbusters. And, you know, and as he gets into his later period where we 
you know, what's kind of crazy about Spielberg is that if you're a younger generation, right, um, you may not necessarily know him as the Jaws Jurassic Park dude. You may know him as the historical drama dude, like the guy who makes movies for your dad, like with Lincoln. And this is like a kind of a perfect meld of the two sensibilities where, yes, it's a historical drama, but it's also, uh, you know, fits into his more crowd-pleasing skills. And there's probably no one better than him at doing that, um, especially when it comes to like a big movie like this. So I think if people do, especially with the word of mouth on it, and it's going to be a huge Oscar player, I think like maybe it will have long legs. Um, and again, like this winter though, it is going to be crowded. Like Spider-Man No Way Home is just a big movie and same with Matrix. But it'd be weird if, Cy uh, 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 if the Peter Dinklage Serrano um, um, sure is, is, yeah, if that's the one that like, got people to the screens <laughs> over the winter break which you can't underestimate given like dinklage's like star power from the game of thrones it's, a, it's just a it is a very a very crowded few weeks between like the big stuff you mentioned and then like there's like licorice pizza and um and nightmare alley are going to be going wide in that week plus you got the 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 streaming stuff with being the ricardos and don't look up all of the, all it's just like i don't i don't really know how i'm going to manage it the, the next three weeks personally and so and movie the, movie goers have some choices to make you know and by the way the thing about this movie too i just want to mention real quick is the fact that like i it's a very unique entrant in an oscar race and just like in the awards conversation because like what was the last time we had a musical that seriously, like, obviously, like, we saw, La like, La Land. what? La La Land? I don't consider La La Land a musical. I think that's, it has too few songs to be a real musical. I think it's, it, like, has a, has, like, six songs in it. But I think of, like, like, we had Into the Woods and, like, Les Mis both got, like, Best Picture nominations, but, like, we're never real contenders. No, Into the Woods didn't. It didn't no, get Best yeah, Picture. No. It, it just it it managed Meryl. to get a perfunctory Mer Meryl Street nom. I thought it had, like, four or five nominations. I thought... Maybe it some other technical stuff. But it, it yeah, I, thought, I remember being all over the place, but that might as well just be Tom Hooper. Um, but my point more is that I like the thing that I'm really struck with looking at this set of movies is A, how much I feel like other things that people thought were going to be really big have kind of underwhelmed. I think there are, obviously we have like every big director as a movie here and some of them people are kind of like, eh. But also I just feel like this feels, this fills a niche that we just haven't had in the conversation in a while in a way that like, and I, I say this having not seen it yet, so I will contend that, but like, it's hard for me to believe that like Power of the Dog is going to win Best Picture after Nomadland won it last year. It's hard for me to believe that like, we're going to do a similar set of like Western kind of stuff over and over again. And so I'm really curious to see like where things end up. That's that's see, my- Here's my take on the state of the race, right? Um, Cause like people are like saying what this chance is now that it kind of bombed, right? Despite the uh, great reviews. And my take is sort of like, all right, so did King Ralph, right? And to a certain extent, even though Dune was probably you, the you mean fighter, you mean I think you mean King Richard. Oh, King Richard, yeah. Sorry, sorry, yeah. not the John Goodman movie. Yeah, <laughs> he like like my take is like adult skewing dramas, unless it has Lady Gaga in it, um, have like bombed, right? And unlike say like the Last Duel, it came out at like right at the right moment where it doesn't even matter anymore because it just got all the precursory nominations that it needed to get, and so. I think that the state of the race, because like going into it, it was like sort of Belfast was the front runner with maybe uh, Power of the Dog being the critical pick, maybe Jane Campion winning Best Director, Belfast Split, whatever. And my thing is like, I think West Side Story has eaten uh, Belfast's lunch because I think this is a legitimate crowd pleaser. I think there's a lot of people who have issues with Belfast. 
fast. And I think even like the, I've rarely seen like a bad review of West Side Story. You know what I mean? I think like the most like on my letterbox, like the worst like star rating is like a three and a half. You and know? the only criticisms I've really seen is more of like a question of should we be remaking West Side Story? Like maybe more like from like a racial perspective of like, this was kind of a racist movie. Do we need to do this again? But I, like right. the actual movie people are like, like it's just the only distinction is, is it great or is it better than the original? That's the only debate I'm seeing. Yeah. And and, and then the other thing too, like, um, and here's my thing, right? All right. So I know like probably they don't want to give it to Spielberg uh, for best director um, because he already has to. And then also this is sort of a rematch of 1993 between him and Jane Campion and it's sort of Jane Campion's turn. But like, come on, like like, this is an example. Like if we had to look at the best director race, right? Um, I, you know, I haven't seen like the other ones. I will reserve comment on like, say, Licorice Pizza or Tragedy of Macbeth or whatever. But between like Belfast and Power of the Dog, right? I think this is a movie where inherently it was the director that made this movie work. Uh, because if it was not for him, this would be a fucking train wreck. Like, this wouldn't be anything worth talking about if it wasn't for Spielberg's direction. And he did truly the impossible, which is he took this iconic film that won Best Picture and arguably made it better. You know what I mean? And so, I like, I, you know, I, I think, and also, like, again, I think it's a legitimate crowd pleaser, unlike Belfast, where I think few people liked it or whatever. But I don't think it's like the rousing like crowd pleaser that that film wants to be. Or um, and to be fair, that movie is a little bit more dour than that is that it can't really fully do it like uh, anyway, right? And just, then power just more broadly, Bo- more yeah. broadly, Josh, I just want to say I think the thing I'm really curious with this year is how much box office matters at all. Because I don't think I, it does. I think at this point, I, I think really once, hope like, it once doesn't. Story came out and it bombed. I think the essential take will be like, all right, even Spielberg with like the IP of West Side Story couldn't make it work. This is just a pay- like the adult skewing audience that would go to see this movie. They're staying home because of the pandemic. And- but, that's the, but that's the funny thing, too, is that In the Heights got ruled out of the conversation because it didn't make money at the box office in June. And now we're back here where even West Side Story couldn't make money. And so it's one of those things where I'm almost and like. Worse. I guess doing December release saves you that conversation. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no, which is why it's kind of like again. That's why like the box office has always been bullshit. Even Dune, if it if like the numbers it made, if it had made that in any other year, it would be a financial bomb, right? Given how much that movie cost, right? But because it crossed one hundred million dollars, it's a success in this pandemic era. So I don't think the box office really matters. And I think when we talk about the preferential ballot when it comes to the Academy Awards, where you know they're going with the more of the consensus uh, film, I think like West Side Story is a legitimate threat because it is probably going to get the most nominations along with Dune in terms of all the craft categories and also mm-hmm. all the acting nominations. It's like to me. I'm curious to see who makes the cut and who doesn't. Because I think Ariana DeBose is a shoe-in. Yeah. I wonder if they're going to nominate Rita. I think she's probably in that category as well. Mike Fast, I hope he is in there and I hope he wins. And and I don't know if Ze- Zegler has like the hardest leap to uh, 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 jump over because that is just a crowded field. Because you have Stewart being the front runner. You have Coleman, Kidman, Cruz, um, Alana Heim. Like that, that's just a packed category. So I don't know who makes the cut. So but, the, the, the interesting part about that one though, is that I like, I'm, I, I'm looking at the, uh, the cursed golden globe nominations. Cause apparently they're still doing them, but I just will say that like, 
I think the hard part about the interesting part about actress is I think it seems so locked up for Kristen Stewart that I actually could see people putting in like this would be a good recognition. Han, do you guys freeze on me? No, 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 you're moving. I was like, okay, I was like, great crap. Okay, um, but I could see them doing a thing where it's like, let me, this is a good way to recognize someone who gave a good performance and who's on the up and up as opposed to like desperately searching for someone who's going to like have a, have an outside shot. Like I could see that happening. That said, I, my, if you had to ask me if we ran this hundred times, how many acting nominations this movie gets, I think it's one. I think it's just going to be for Iron Bows. I don't think any of the rest of them are going to get in. Well, here's the thing. I think supporting actor is probably a weak field. I think like the only one, I think the only lock that I know for supporting actor is Cody uh, 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 Smith. I can't pronounce his name at the moment, but from Power of the Dog. Cody Smith McPhee, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, Cody Smith McPhee. Um, I think like he's the only lock there. And by the way, between the two, I'm fast all the way. Oh, no. Uh, no, So this is not. Kieran Hines and Jamie Dorman from Belfast. I forgot about them too. Yeah, I think the thing about oh, it, Jared is, Leto, Jared Leto. Oh my I, God. Oh God, I, I hope please not. no. Oh God, I don't want that. I just, I think the hard part for me about thinking this movie, I, I feel like despite being, I think in a lot of ways a lot better movie, I could see this going down like the post route where it's like, here's 10 nominations and then, eh. Well, that's actually, the thing with the post. That's the thing with the post. That, that was like also an example of sort of like Spielberg, late period Spielberg, right? Where the Post only got a Best Picture nomination and a Best Actress nomination for Meryl Streep, right? Yeah. And it's the only Spielberg film to like get nominated for Best Picture and not get any craft noms, right? And I think that sort of was like, all right, we like you. And, and it was just like sort of out of respect that it got nominated because it, it had the least amount of nominations, right? Um, and I think this one actually has a lot of enthusiasm and love for it uh, compared to like The Post or even Bridge of Spies where it's sort of like the old people pick of the uh, nominees. Well, and because uh, it's because it's technically good, it'll have a lot of support in those guilds, right? Yeah, no, The Post yeah. is the wrong analogy i'm thinking of more of like a gangs of new york type of thing where it's like we like it because the thing the thing i struggle with with this movie in terms of an award not awards conversation is like i so i am not a film person josh obviously you've demonstrated a lot more knowledge about that than i have i the cinematography of this seems incredible and so i feel like that's a place where like i don't know the cinematographer or like how much there's like a if there's someone else that's like desperately got to get it but like if i had to describe what makes this movie work it's the direction which Spielberg's definitely get nominated for best director for this. It's, it's, it's that striking, but he's never going to win. And so it's like, if you want to recognize this movie, it's not going to happen there. I can't, I would be surprised with cinematography. Obviously you can't like, you could, I could see Kushner getting an adapted screenplay nomination. That seems interesting. And I've heard, I've heard some people talking about that. I still think my impression from other people is that a lot of the best films are all adapted. And so that's going to be a really tight category anyway. Yeah, I think that's Campion. I think Campion's going to win for Power of the Dog. Do you think they're going to give Campion best director and best screenplay though? I think, I well, here's the thing. Here's the thing, right? This is the thing with Power of the Dog, right? It's the critical pick of the bunch, right? But it's boring as fuck. So it's like, directed by a woman. So Josh is going to keep railing against it. <laughs> Hey, 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 man. I was in 2017. I voted for Greta Gerwig on my Oscar ballot. All right. Like she was my. In 2019, you voted for Lorraine Scafaria. So you get to get to keep this railing against the woman and all the others. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But that being said, like Power of the Dog is boring. Belfast, eh. And so, like, my take with like Power of the Dog, I do think like it is sort of a campion, it's her turn type thing. But I wonder 
once we get to the Globes, once we get to the DGA, and once we, you know, get to like the other awards when the people actually start voting, I wonder if it actually. Again, here's the thing. I sort of thought the same thing with Nomadland, but that was like a much weaker year too, where like there was no crowd pleasing pick. Um, um, like even David, like David Fincher turned in probably his worst movie. Um, and so like there was nothing to really work with there. So, okay, I, so I, I, I'm get, I don't want to get any Mank slander on here because I fucking love Mank. But um, I, I guess the thing, reason I wanted to go to that place is I actually think this could be a real contender for best picture because I could see yeah. a situation where they give her best director, but they're like, this is like a Coron Roma thing where they're like, we gave you the award, like leave us alone. I don't see Dune winning best picture. I can't see that. I love that movie. It, it is not a standalone movie, first of all. And second of all, I just don't think the Oscars are going to go for that. I just can't see that happening. I, again, I think that here's where I see the race, right? I think it's like it was Power to Dog versus Belfast with Belfast being the front runner. And Belfast is going to, that bash to wing of the Academy and also Brana, it's his turn. But I think now Brana has to settle for best original screenplay. I think his biggest competition is Paul Thomas Anderson, but sight unseen i haven't seen licorice pizza i know people really love it at the same time i think it's sort of from what i've heard it's a shaggier story and i think like with licorice pizza uh, although like it may be on a lot of people's best of year list um i don't necessarily think that it won't it's a lot of people's favorite pta um from my like understanding so i'm not entirely sure if they want to like wait a little bit um to give it to pta um for something they may like more or whatever yeah i uh, guess and we've we've got on here a bit so i keep you too long josh but uh i would just say i think my ultimate question with this year is that it doesn't feel like we're getting an it's time campaign for a best picture i feel like we're getting a bet jane campion's getting a best director trophy that's fine but i think absent that this does feel like a movie that has any none of these other movies have like maybe power of the dog but like this has a remarkable critical reception and it's like it's been effusive it's been across the board it's the type of movie that can't you see a an old ass academy viewer putting this on because they're like okay i gotta watch this and then just being on like pins and needles for two hours and 40 minutes like it's it's so big it's so bombastic it's so colorful it's so dynamic that like it just feels like the type of movie that in after Nomad landed after all these like quiet at home movies from Netflix. They're going to be like, I guess we could put Mank in that category where it's like a quiet, like thoughtful movie. This is a big movie. And it's big in a way. You know, it's another example where the Academy had that not too long ago in musical adjacent, A Star is Born. And they couldn't get to the uh, uh, finish line up the guy's green fucking book. Um, and and so I, I like here's the thing i think this movie is like you know more i think even more loved than stars born um and then also there's just like spielberg standing within the academy which by the way it is potential like here's the thing it, i think there's a potential where like now that the director's branch is a lot more international where like um they are like snubbing like you know directors that were like seen as locks like aaron sorkin last year or Thank cooper God or Cooper in 18, you know, I think maybe the international branch might be a little bit tougher on it because they seem to go for the more um, art house pick, the more foreign favorite. So I could see a world where it's, like, I think Spielberg is essentially a lock here, um, but I think, like, it, it's potential that, like, maybe we see, like, Ashgar for Hardy or um, Joachim Trier um, or uh, Drive My Car get in for best, like, you know, that, you know, fifth slot, like yeah. And uh, I think I think a Starborn is actually a really good 
analog for this movie end of day because I could see it being very well loved, very well received, and gets ten nominations and maybe wins somewhere perfunctorily. Like it's and, and, and like, then like he, I think what the biggest test is like at this Globes that we don't care about, but like because like like here's the thing: as much as we say we don't care about the Globes, right? They were the motherfuckers that gave us the race Green Book versus Bohemian Rhapsody, right? We'll always hate them for that. That was the worst night I've had in a long time. <laughs> and so I could and so like I think the biggest so like. The Globes nomination came out today and, you know, Power to Dog is in that drama category and West Side Story is a musical. And it looks like West Side Story should be the front runner for best musical. Right. Um, but who knows? Maybe they give but, it to, to, to but Licorice Pizza is in musical and comedy, too. And so if that's the direction people are thinking, you could see it moving that direction, too. That's the only sure. thing I'm wondering about. I, I think like with Licorice Pizza, I think like it's best. It's like unseen. I haven't seen it. I think it's going to be nominated for Best Picture. Mm-hmm. I think PTA could probably get into Best Director slot. I think sort of it's going to be a movie that gets like picture director, maybe if it's lucky, actress and um, screenplay nomination. And that's sort of where it lands, but maybe not even win anything. I like. I think the best shot of winning something is probably an original screenplay, sight unseen, based off of what I've seen of the race. All right, and guys. you could also, yeah, I was just say production design is the other thing I was just that just came to mind where I was thinking in terms of like the craft categories that really stand out in this movie. I think well, that's the oh, other thing. Well, it's competing against Dune. It's basically. I think, oh God, yeah, fuck. Yeah, 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 yeah that's gonna be tough. I think costumes. I think costumes it will win. I think it will win costumes. Yeah, but Dune yeah. has the sweatsuits and all that shit. God, yeah, Dune's no. gonna win twelve Oscars and nothing above the line. Yeah, it'd be yeah. So you guys got the just kind of in, in talking about their words. I know you're able to touch on a lot of other odds and ends throughout the, about the movie. We're gonna skip recommendations for today because uh, uh, we've already been going very long, and I have a hearing in the morning and. You guys are both going to be back in the next few weeks, probably to talk about other movies and we can do that thing. Cause those podcasts will probably not be as long as this one. Uh, but uh, if, if you didn't already touch on it in, in the little awards discussion you guys has had uh, John, are there any other final thoughts on West side story, any other odds and ends, anything else you want to leave us with before we sign off? Uh, see, run to your theater and see this in a big theater. <laughs> like I feel I, that's the one thing I, 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 first of all, I, I don't know how many people are going to make it this far, but um it's that good. And I will say like Mike Feist is that incredible in this movie that like Josh is going on this and I totally agree. I just am a, a jaded old sad person who I'm just like, I don't think that's going to happen, but incredible performance. And I think the thing about this movie is just how electric it is. Like, it's just, it is a two hour and 40 minute hundred mile hour roller coaster. And it's, it's worth every penny to see it as many times as you can. Yeah, I yeah, just abuse it if you have the AMC A list like I do. Uh, Josh, any final thoughts on West Side Story and your guy Steve? Like, let me tell you, when I came out of this theater, right? I came out of it. I was elated. I was so happy. Again, I I was like, it, like, it getting nominations feels like I'm getting nominated. I was just so I was the happiest I've ever felt, you know. And so it is a cinematic high. The best uh, movie I saw all year. Um, I still have some stuff to see, by the way. Um, and it's just a great theatrical experience. You want to see it while still playing in IMAX. So you see it in the biggest screen. And I think this is the best Spielberg movie since Munich. This is the best movie I've seen since Lady Bird. Like in terms of just like, I don't think there's been a movie I've seen since that I enjoyed seeing. John, I love you, my guy. I love <laughs> you. Like, just, uh, this is... Bring us back for the Greta Gerwig Barbie movie, all right? Like, <laughs> if that happens, I'm going to 
Yo, it's happening. Like they got Ryan Gosling to play Ken. I'm excited for that. And it's gonna get 12 Oscars and we're all gonna love it and we're gonna hate ourselves for loving it. I don't even know. Um, but I I think the thing about this movie is it's not just good, it is great to a degree that like it's like hard to believe how good it was. Like I sat when you were talking about the the credits and just sitting there, I just sat there like my friends wanted to talk to me, I was just sitting there like this, like what just happened. (laughs) Like I just like had to process the end because like by the way. Here's the thing. And for me, the biggest thrill was like, it was the first time that I've really loved a Spielberg film since Munich, right? Um, you know, and I really did like Lincoln. And I, and I, and, and like, Munich's not one you can really leave smiling. So this is a different feeling that you have had on time. Final shot of the Twin Towers. I'm like, oh man, I love the symbolism. Um, um, but anyway, so like, uh, you know, like just speaking of the credits, like, you know, like, in the past decade, right? I think 2010s was his roughest decade, right? And Ready Player One, I remember thinking, like, it has such a very perfunctory title credits that it almost looks like a missing reel. Um, and when it's like, oh, you could have had, like, this fun, cool 8-bit sequence or whatever, right? And here, I'm like, even the end credits are lovingly done with, like, the Janusz Kaminski cinematography. It's just, and I'm like, ah. Again, it, it was like my favorite team hasn't been at the Super Bowl for a while. Like, and it's like sort of like if you're a Dolphins fan and you're like, we're back, baby. We have conquered. Here we go. I can unapologetically love this movie and recommend it to people. We should make someone have to watch this movie and, and uh, Ready Player One back to back and be like, how did he miss so much in this one? And then gets like, Ready Player One's one of those movies that you just watch it and you're like, how did you miss this many things? Like, there's just so many things off in it. And this one, I'm just like, oh my God, everything fits together. It's just like, it's it's a masterwork. And I'm just, and I'm glad he I has this fastball. Like, I actually like Ready Player One and I will defend it. And I, I also think it has one of the best action sequences. We don't have time uh, for you to defend it. You can just say, I will defend it, but you're not going to actually give the defense right now because I have to edit this thing. <laughs> oh yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. But yeah, yeah, no. It, it, edit out like all of our group. awards discussion. We don't need that much discussion of Power of the Dog winning Best Picture. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, I, like, I'm, I'm like, already literally staring down the barrel of like an hour and a half of Power in the Dog editing that I still haven't done from when I talked about it with Holden last week. So uh, I'm just like up against it. Kyle, that shit. Oh, uh, no, I, I the, what we'll say, don't include any of this doesn't matter, is that Ready Player One, there's just so many things where it's like, oh, you could have made this reference. Or like, why did you use this? Oh, you just like skip this and like the takeaways. There's just a lot of things where I'm just like, what's happening here? why like why did you it's again a movie where it's like why did you pick this as your source material to then do this and i i do i like it as a movie that does not mean it's a good movie i think it is a bad movie that is fun and i have watched it since and i enjoy it but it's not good and so i think the thing with this is like again and just he got his groove back well he got his groove back but i also the thing about this movie that works so well is it reminds me of like and this is a bar to say but it reminds me a little bit of like the way Parasite fits together where every single piece fits together. Everything on screen is important. Everything fits together. And the same thing happens here where like there are little threads that happen, whether it's to speak English, whether it's the way the cops are dealing with the jets, like all these things contribute to a world that is fully thought out and fully realized in a way that I really love. Yeah, Uh, like here's the rule of thumb for late period Spielberg. If it's Rylance, bad. If it's uh, Kushner, good. Didn't Rylance win an Oscar? I, I thought I thought you just defended uh, Bridges Spies earlier. Yeah, well, here, here here's my thing. I, like, look, like I, I like it, but you know, I think it's less lesser tier Spielberg, right? I think all the Rylance collaborations have been uh, lesser tier. Um, I think he's sort of been like 
I, I, the Rylance has been sort of a weird avatar for his late period work in, in a way that I don't really like. Um, a movie can be bad, but enjoyable. It can yeah, be yeah, like, yeah. I know this is not good, but I enjoy it. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, but like, yeah, uh, I, I think it's just, you know, Kushner, Spielberg, just don't doubt them. They do good oh, work together. We didn't talk. One thing we didn't talk about at all that I just have to, we have to mention is the fact that Tony Kushner wrote Angels in America and is like one of the greatest playwrights of like our like history. Like he's just one of those people who like, you hear Tony Kushner and you're like, oh, like in, Angels in America is like one of the most important like gay playwright, like plays. Like one, it won Tony Award for best play two years in a row because in part one and part two went up and won both years. Like it's one of those things that's just like a seminal work on several levels. And so when he comes back, he's done other things too. I'm forgetting. He's done a bunch of, he obviously did the Lincoln screenplay, but he's done other ones in too. Munich. Yeah. yeah. Um, and now he's doing the Fablemans, which Josh accuses me of incepting into existence. I don't believe the Fablemans is real. I, I don't believe that's real. I think I think we all had a collective dream that that's Which happening. by the way, by the way, because Josh knows my favorite director is Spielberg and my favorite actor is Seth Rogen. Yeah, so you like, and, I'm, it, I'm, and, and I'm a man of, who's a fan of the Jewish experience. <laughs> <laughs> um, as a, uh, as a as a uh, legal Jew, a uh, familiar Jew, I will say I am. I don't know how to feel about that. Seth Rogen is a choice. <laughs> that is no, he he's not. He, he he's playing the kid's uncle in that movie. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, it's funny that you mentioned Kushner because I mean, I guess my thing is like I I mean I was asking Josh about his expectations earlier, and my thing was that like. I, you know, I, the one thing keeping me from being one of those people that was like, why do we need this? Was like, I trust Tony Kushner and Steven Spielberg enough to not touch something like this unless they have a good idea. So that was the one thing that like, I, I that kept like, that kept me intrigued about this whole thing throughout was like, I, I just can't imagine uh, Spielberg. He's too smart to just do this for shits and gigs. He's got to really have some like real thought put into this. And I'm Tony Kushner, obviously very thoughtful writer. And I, I and I, I guess I was rewarded for like, you know, not just uh, for, for not just like totally writing them off. Cause they, I mean, they, they really stuck the landing and they somehow made this thing feel timely and like, uh, and like even improved on some of the legendary uh, um, musical set pieces. And it's, it, they really just didn't miss on almost anything. And it's, it, it's, it's truly, really special. And yes, as, as they said, go see it in, the movies uh john you want to plug your twitter your letterbox anything like that uh yeah they're both at j l police my last name p-u-l-i-c-e um come say hi yeah you can follow uh josh's uh photography instagram brown film collective anything else josh or that it, that's it yeah that's about it Oh, right. you'll see that Sorry, just buy a ticket, you know. Yeah, as usual, I'm Josh Jernovoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y on both Twitter and Letterboxd. The podcast Twitter is at Rewind Movie Pod. Podcast email is therewindmoviepod at gmail.com. Send any feedback that way. Coming up next, we uh, might have podcasts on, uh, I don't know, Spider-Man No Way Home. Uh, maybe I'll finally put out that episode of Birdman Island I recorded with our friend Ben, but I'm honestly probably just saving that for a week where I just don't have anything else to, to put up. Uh and not not because it's bad, but because it's just like less timely than the stuff that's in theaters because that thing's just been on demand. Uh, but we got plenty of other things coming this next few weeks. I ran through a lot of them earlier, uh, whether it be I, I think Josh will probably be joining for Don't Look Up, uh, John maybe for Red Rocket. But we still got I still got to figure out stuff for uh, uh, Nightmare Alley, Licorice Pizza, all that. So uh, just a ton of stuff coming in the next th three weeks. And I don't really know how I'm going to do it, but we'll do it. So thanks to everyone for listening. Stay tuned. We'll see you next time.